to have God's Word open us up to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Just one verse in Romans, and then we'll jump to Deuteronomy. And I'll be sure to announce when we are jumping. But we'll begin Romans chapter 14, verse 17. And then we will go to Deuteronomy 10, 10 through 22. You'll see it up on the screen. And when you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's Word. Again, Romans 14, verse 17. Now this is the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 10, beginning on verse 10 to 22. I myself stand on the mountain as at the first time, forty days and forty nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you, and the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, Israel, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, the Lord your God belong heaven, excuse me, behold, to the Lord your God, Belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you numerous as the stars of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and join us as we pray and sing. Uh, good morning. Uh, for the past few months, we've been thinking and talking about the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke 17, 20 to 21, if you remember, it says this, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
Remember, this verse uh, teaches us that the kingdom of God is not just a spatial place, it's not just a location, but the kingdom is a rule, it's the reign of God among his people. Very similar to the concept of a home. If I were to ask you, how would you describe home, right, home is more than just a physical dwelling place. When we say the word home, we're speaking of the members, the relationships, the culture, the way of life. You know, one of the ways in which we delineate home from the outside is by taking off, in some cultures, is by taking off one's shoes. By taking off one's shoes, it's actually a demarcation, a line saying, I'm now going from the outside into someone's home. Right? So also, the kingdom of God. When we speak about the kingdom of God, we're not just talking about this location, but we're talking about its king, the triune God. We're talking about its people, and we're talking about the reign, the rule of God among the people. And so, how does the kingdom of God come? The kingdom comes when we worship Him, when we sing His praises. That's when the kingdom of God is in our midst. When the good news of the kingdom goes forth, that's when the kingdom advances, when we live as ambassadors and representatives of the King Jesus. That's when the kingdom comes upon us. And so what is our vision as a church? Our vision is to see this kingdom, God's rule and His reign, come into our homes, into our communities, and come into the world. Now, starting today and for the next two weeks, we're going to explore the kingdom of God in our communities. And we're going to do that in three ways. We're going to see the kingdom of God first through the lens of justice, next through the lens of union, and third through the lens of proclamation. And I think this structure uh, is roughly from Romans fourteen seventeen, where Paul says the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but it's about righteousness, it's about peace, and it's about joy. And so we'll focus on justice, union, and the proclamation aspect in our communities. Today, we're going to focus on justice. And today's outline is uh, three simple points. First, the emphasis of justice in the Bible. Uh, Second, the meaning of justice. And third, its relation to the gospel. Justice as the gospel. So first, the emphasis. Uh, You know, throughout the Bible, you'll see that there is a heavy, heavy, heavy emphasis on justice. Why? Because God, who is judge over the entire world, who is ruler over all things, who is creator, this God is a just God. Right? Psalm 97.2 simply states this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Now, just so you know, the word righteousness and justice are often used synonymously in the Bible. And this verse states that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. I mean, what does it mean when you say something is foundational? What are you, what are you referring to? Well, when you refer to something as foundational, you're saying that it's the core, right? It's the center or the anchor through which all of your actions and decisions are enacted. What would you say is your foundation? Is it security? Is it comfort? Is it fear? 
Is it pragmatism? Is it profit? What is your foundation? Is it union, harmony, love? Well, for God, the foundation in which he acts is justice. Justice. See, this is the reason why when God addresses his people, he commands them over and over again to act justly. Now, the command to act justly is found primarily in three contexts throughout the Bible. First, you'll find that at the formation of a community, God, he speaks of justice frequently. And so think about it, right? Think about Exodus, when the people have left Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness, and they're about to form a new community as they enter into the promised land. What does God talk about? He talks about being just as a society, as a community. When you think about the exile, right, when the people have left uh, exile, when they're from Babylon and they're returning back into the land and they're once again starting the foundations of their society, what is emphasized? Justice. Today's passage, Deuteronomy 10, is exactly the, the exodus where they are looking back at Mount Sinai. Right? Mount Sinai is the 1776 moment for the Israelites. It's when the nation is being founded, a nation is being formed, and at the fabric of this society is what? It's justice. When Jesus comes, what does he speak of? He speaks of acting justly. Right? And so whenever there's the formation of a new society, a new community, there's the emphasis of justice. The second context in which justice is emphasized is in the context of worship. And so you'll find throughout Psalms, when people are worshiping, they're praising God for his attributes, his justice. And then they are reminded that as a community, in worship, that they too ought to act justly. The third context in which justice is emphasized is in the context of revival. There are times throughout the Bible when the people are eagerly seeking God's face. They're praying, they're fasting, they're gathering, and they're holding these festivals in hopes that God would bless them. And in those moments, God, he speaks stern words of rebuke and reminder saying this, hey, this is not what I asked for. I don't want all of this. What I want from you as a people is justice. Amos 5, 21 to 24 says this. Now, this is after the ex, or this is when the people are uh, in exile and they're finding their place or they're, they're trying to return and, and think, what are we to do as a people, as a nation? And they're seeking God's face, and this is what the prophet says. He says, I hate I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. He says this, Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, this is in the context of renewal and revival where the people are seeking God's face. And what does he say? He says, listen, take all of this away. This is not what I want. I want to see righteousness and justice flow among you. Or Micah 6, 8 famously says this, Has he told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do 
justice and to love kindly and to walk humbly with your God. See, what God truly desires, the emphasis is this. It's not, the emphasis is not on piety, it's not on spirituality, it's not on fellowship, but the emphasis for the people of God is justice. For the people of God, promoting and establishing justice is not optional. It ought to be at the core of what we do. It ought to be our foundation as well. So that's the emphasis. We cannot avoid this. So then, the second point, the meaning. What does justice mean then? More importantly, what does it look like? Now, I have to give the church a warning at this point. The issue of justice has become one of the most divisive issues in the church today. See, all Christians, I think, agree that justice is important, right? The emphasis on justice is clearly in the Bible, but there's a division on what that means, what it looks like. I know churches that have split over this issue. I know pastors who have been fired and have been hired based on their views on justice. And I know too, too many Christians who have left the faith due to the church's response to justice or the lack thereof. This has especially become heightened due to the rise of the BLM movement a few years back. And the conversation on justice today has become so politically charged that the moment someone says something, we immediately categorize that person as either left or right, as either a donkey or an elephant. Now, I am pleading with you at this point. I'm giving you this warning because please resist this urge as I lay out what or how the Bible defines justice. This has become such a sticky topic, such a thorny issue, and you know, we have to really resist that urge of trying to categorize and box people in because as we see what the Scriptures reveal, God is neither left nor right. He's the creator of justice. He created it. And so what do we find? What is justice? Well, justice is defined in actually two ways throughout the Bible. First, Leviticus 24.22, justice is defined simply as fairness. And so it says this, Leviticus 24, 22 says this, you shall have the same rule, and the rule, and this same rule, the word for that is actually the word mishpat, which is justice. You should have the same justice for who? For the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. And so when we think about what justice is, according to the Bible, primarily it is fair and equal treatment. Now, I know this sounds obvious, like, duh, of course, that's what justice is. But if you actually look at what it says in Leviticus 24, it's actually a radical idea because notice the two groups that are being compared. It's who? The native, right? The citizen, your very own, your kin, your family, your people versus who? The sojourner, the passerby, the visitor, someone with no heritage or history in your country, or your people. But God is saying, give them the same justice. 
See, this contrast, right, this comparison is not don't treat the rich and the poor the same. Don't treat the old and the young the same, the educated and the non-educated. No, God draws the starkest contrast you can ever draw, right? The native and the sojourner and treat them the same. That's justice. You know, I remember a few years back, um, we had partnered with a Burmese family. Many of you know him. His name is Ong, wife of December, Jairo, and Jidi. And they were Westminster's first Burmese students. And so our church, we were able to partner with them. We had helped them, and they were a tremendous impact onto us and we onto them. And when it was time for them to go back, our church, we wanted to bless them. And so we had bought hundreds and hundreds of books Uh, Ong was a professor, or he is a professor at a seminary in Myanmar, and what they needed was books, and so we had blessed them. We had bought hundreds of books, uh, eight huge bags worth of books uh, weighing anywhere from 70 pounds, uh, upwards of 70 pounds. And when they were going back, uh, I had to rent a large van. We packed the the car, and I drove them to the airport, and when we got to the airport, uh, we had checked in all the bags, paid for all the, uh, the overage charges, and as the counter clerk, she was checking them all in, she says, wait a minute, there are two issues. First, the son, uh, the second son, um, he has an American passport because he was born here, but you are Burmese citizens. You can't bring this child in without a ticket coming back out. So we were stunned. We we're like, what do you mean? He's their son. And they said, well, he's an American citizen. And you cannot bring in an infant without a ticket leaving the country because immigration will think you're smuggling the child. And so I said, okay, all right, that's, we'll, we'll find out a way. And she said, the easiest way is you just need to buy a bus ticket from Myanmar to Thailand, the closest country, and just show that you have that ticket. And so we said, okay, fine, we'll do it. But then she said, the second problem is this. The husband, Ong, his passport is expired. He can't enter the country. And at that point, I looked at December, the wife, and she had this look on her face, right? It was like 12 a.m. She had these two young kids who were crying, these bags, you know, hundreds, hundreds of pounds of uh, books. And she had this look on on her face. She stared at him. It wasn't a look of disappointment. It was a look of anger. (laughs) How could you do this? And with the utmost patience, she said this to me. She said, Pastor, please pray for me. (laughs) And so we were at the airport, and I I couldn't even look at Ong. I couldn't look at his face expression because he was going to be so upset and down. And so we, we prayed. And I saw her, she, she you know, tightened her backpack, she picked up the two boys, and with this look of determination, right, like she's running for the end zone, she says, I'm going, see you, bye, and she left. Now, I'm there with Ong um, with this expired passport, and he's just there clueless, con- with confusion, not knowing what to do. Does- he doesn't know the bureaucracy of, you know, immigration and all these things. And the clerk is telling us, you know, we need to call, you know, we need to go to the embassy, get the passport renewal, so on and so forth. And I said, no, please, call the immigration office in Yangon, Myanmar, because that's where they were headed. I said, please call them, call them. They tried calling, and this was, you know, a budget airline. It was Air China. You know, many of them couldn't speak English too well, and they're trying to call Myanmar. They couldn't speak English too well either, and we're just trying to do this thing. I said, please call them. Please call them. 
And so, you know, the time was approaching, the, the airplane was about to take off. It was like one of those like Argo moments as we were waiting for the phone call, waiting for the phone call. And the phone call came in and I simply said, listen, he is your citizen. Take him back. Let him into your country. He is your citizen. And they said, okay. And at that moment, I said, go, run. And he started running, and he was able to get onto the plane. And the appeal that I made was, take your citizen back. He is yours. He is yours. You know, when we think about, you know, the the treatment that we receive as a native versus a sojourner, right? I mean, we think, who cares if the sojourner receives a lesser treatment compared to the national, right? It's the national that matters, but God cares. You see, for God, whether that person is a national or a sojourner, they are both image-bearing creatures. They are His creation. It's like one sibling mistreating his or her other sibling under the impression that they have greater worth or value, but in the eyes of the parents, they are both both equal, and that is how God sees the national and the foreigner. This is one of the reasons why throughout the Bible God says He abhors bribes, partiality, favoritism, treating people differently. Why? Because for God, everyone is created in the image of God. They are all His image-bearing creatures. So first, when the Bible speaks of justice, it talks about fairness treating people equally. And I know sometimes we think, well, that's, of course, that's the definition of justice. But do you know how difficult it is to treat people without partiality? How difficult it is to not treat people with favoritism or partiality? But for God, that is the definition of justice. But the second way in which justice is described in the Bible is justice as mercy. This is Proverbs 31.9. It says this, open your mouth, judge righteously. It's talking about justice. And it says what? Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So according to the Bible, when it speaks of justice, justice is not just the equal treatment for everyone, but it's also the special care It's also advocacy for the vulnerable. It's also love and mercy and attention to the oppressed and to the weak. Justice, according to the Bible, is being merciful to those in need. Justice is acting with mercy and seeking justice for the vulnerable. This is a radical concept as well, because why? We view justice and mercy as actual opposites, right? Justice is fairness, right? It's giving someone what they deserve, but what mercy, that's the other side. That's grace, so that if you give one, you're going to compromise the other. If you act mercifully, what? We think it's a compromise of justice, and if we act justly, we think that's the absence of mercy, but the Bible views Justice and mercy as being on the same side. True justice almost always requires mercy. Do you know why God teaches an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Do you know why? Because retribution, when we take retribution, if someone takes out our eye, how do we respond? We respond not just by taking out one eye, but maybe two eyes and a nose. Right? Retribution is always increased, 
The degree is always increased. But when God speaks of justice, he not only, the reason why he gives an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is so that we, don't, we wouldn't act overly retru- uh, in retribution. But also, on the other hand, when the Bible speaks of ju- justice, it always speaks of justice as requiring mercy. Micah 6.8, as we looked at, right, this well-known passage, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Do justice, love mercy. They're not, two, they're not two things that are on opposite ends, but they are of the same. Love is the motive. Justice is the instrument, as one theologian once said. And if you had to guess, do you think the Bible speaks of justice as fairness more or justice as mercy? If you were to take account, it's justice as mercy. Often when God speaks on the issue of justice, it's most of the time in the context of mercy. Today's passage, Deuteronomy 10, 17, says this, The awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe, He executes justice, right? He executes justice for who? For the fatherless, the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See, it doesn't say that God just simply loves these poor and oppressed people. It doesn't say that God shows mercy to them, that he's having pity on them or compassion on them, right? It doesn't say if you have the resources, help these people, but what? It uses the word justice. God executes justice for these people. He's executing justice for the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, and the poor. And this command shows up again and again, Zechariah 7, 9 to 10. This command is reminded as they're coming out of exile. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment. Show kindness and mercy to one another. You see, these are not opposites. Rendering true judgment and showing kindness and mercy are on the same the same wavelength, and it says, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So there are two truths, I think, to take away from the meaning of justice as we find it in the Bible. The first is this, when it comes to justice in the Bible and showing mercy, there are these four groups of people that always show up, the quartet of the vulnerable. It's who? It's the widow the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor. These four people. God always speaks of these four people. And I think today, this quartet could be expanded to include many other groups of people. The unborn, the elderly, many single parents, the homeless. Why are these people frequently brought up in the context of justice? Why does God say, administer justice for these people? The reason why is because these people can't defend themselves. They are voiceless people. They are people without the ability to defend themselves. You see, the reason why God never says, hey, defend the rights of the rich, is because the rich can defend themselves. The established, they have their own voice. The reason why God says, defend the cause of the poor, the oppressed, 
It's because these people cannot seek justice on their own. They need an advocate. They need a voice. Nicholas Walterstroff says this, injustice is not equally distributed. Injustice is often given to those without a voice, to those who have the inability to defend themselves. You know, I, th- I think a very unique immigrant experience, for those of you who grew up as an immigrant, uh, with immigrant parents, is that oftentimes you have to be the mouthpiece of your parents. You know, I recall at an early age, because my parents couldn't speak English well, I had to go and be their mouthpiece. I had to go to the Social Security office I had to pick up the phone and call Bell Atlantic, remember that old food company, and argue about the phone bill. I had to take care of insurance issues with Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and I had to navigate the beautiful bureaucracy of the great American capitalistic system. I'm so lucky that we didn't have Comcast, because I would have lost it. Right? Immigrant children, we have this experience of often being the mouthpiece of our parents. You're their advocate, defender. You are the one who speaks on their behalf, asking, why did you charge me an extra $12.99 for a service I didn't sign up for? And in that way, God calls upon His people to care for the oppressed, those without a voice, those who cannot defend themselves. The second thing I think we can take away from this is this. Mercy is a justice issue. See, justice, when the Bible speaks of justice, it isn't just talking about enacting punishment on people for what they deserve. Justice isn't just fair treatment, but what? Justice is displaying mercy, being generous, advocating for the defenseless. You know, simply as a church, I think these, the, the quartet, these four groups of people, I think if we just focus on them, that's, I think that's, it's just so simple. Um, Brian Stevenson, um, who's an attorney in Alabama, wrote a book called Just Mercy. And I definitely recommend this book for anyone who wants to just get a little bit more deeper into this. But he says this, the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. The true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the the incarcerated, and the condemned. So that's what mercy means, or that's what justice means according to the Bible. The third and final, what does justice have to do with the gospel? What does all of this have to do with the good news of our salvation? I think this is also something that we need to flesh out because this has also driven a wedge between the uh, people in the church. Some people are accused of, you are just about the gospel and not about justice, while others say, You're just about justice and not about the gospel. But if we really understand the concept of justice, we'll see that it actually goes hand in hand with the gospel. See, the amazing truth of the good news is that God, He not only is someone who cares for the oppressed, the broken, and the poor, but He's also one who identifies with them and He shares in their experience. 
You know how God introduces himself throughout the Old Testament? He doesn't say, I'm the God of the great king of Israel. He doesn't say, I'm the God who've done all of these marvelous things. God introduces himself, not in that way, but he introduces himself as, I'm the God of the widow, I'm the God of the fatherless, I'm the God of the immigrant, I'm the God of the poor. How do you identify yourself? With whom do you identify yourself? For God, he identifies himself with these people. Not only that, but when Jesus comes to this world, he comes being born into poverty. So our God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he not only cares for the broken, but he actually identifies with the broken. He shares in their experience. He shares in the experience of the vulnerable. Where Jesus, he is born into poverty. He's born in a feeding trough. And soon after his birth, his parents have to flee. And so Jesus, very early on, he was a refugee. He was a child without a home. He was a child without a country. You know, most devastatingly, you know, when the religious leaders, when they put Jesus on trial, when they capture him, the arrest was illegal, the trial was illegal, the process was illegal. Jesus was taken advantage of over and over again. Jesus suffered the greatest mistrial in the history of mankind. Where people in power wanted to see him dead, and what did they do? They used their power to circumvent all the rules, all the rules of justice to see that Jesus would be put to death. They bring up false witnesses. They bring him up on these made-up charges. They couldn't get anything to stick, and so what did they do? They accused him of treason, and they brought Jesus to the Roman governor because they couldn't do everything. They used every trick in the book to see that Jesus would be executed. And you know, when Jesus suffered this mistrial, there was no outrage on Twitter. No one was trying to cancel the Sanhedrin. Jesus was publicly treated unjustly. You see, God is someone who can truly understand and know the experiences of one who is oppressed, of one who is vulnerable, of one who is poor. Jesus certainly shares in that experience. And what do we find at the cross where he is crucified? We find justice, perfect justice, and perfect mercy meeting together. Where the justice of God for the sins of the world, the fair judgment for the sins of the world are put onto Jesus. And the overwhelming mercy of God, the grace of God, is given to those who believe. See, we saw throughout the Old Testament that justice and mercy were on the same wavelength, and we see this epitomized, we see this coming at a climax where at the cross of Jesus, where he faces the justice of God for the sins of the world, and those who receive and believe in Jesus receives God's favor, his grace, and his mercy. You see, when we think about it, this idea of justice and mercy, it actually isn't only for the vulnerable, the weak, the poor that are among us, but it's for all of us. Right? What does God say in Deuteronomy 10 in our passage? He says, treat the sojourners with love. Why? Because you were sojourners. He's saying, you are the same. We are the same. We are all the same. And the way in which we were saved, the mercy that we have been given 
the just mercy that we have received, that is how you ought to treat those among you. How does the kingdom of God come? How does it come into our communities? Is when we start treating the oppressed, the vulnerable, those without a voice in our communities the same way God has treated us with just mercy. That is when the kingdom starts to advance in a radical, radical way. When we see justice as a calling, when we see justice not as enacting punishment in a fair way, but as giving mercy just as we have received mercy. I want to end by just quoting Brian Stevenson once again. I don't have the quote up for for us, but let me read. This is what he says. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair. I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. The power of just mercy is that it belongs to the undeserving. It is when mercy is least expected that it is most potent, strong enough to break the cycle of victimization and victimhood, retribution and suffering. Just mercy has the power to heal. Would you join me in prayer at this time?